0: There's nothing like Tuesdays at noon, no news, nothing to keep your minds busy. Everybody coming in here with their personal problems? As if I, I had sex last week for the first time since Lisa and I split up. As with a woman, I hardly know. I'm feeling kind of conflicted about it. For many reasons, I suppose, not the least of which is I obviously have to confront some unresolved feelings for Dana. Plus, I really miss my shirt. Keep talking. I'm just going to start drinking now. In three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall those stories plus alongside steve cimino i'm adam amin and you're listening to those stories plus the sports night podcast
1: this week we jump into episode 16 of the first season sally one of the best scenes in the series as as far as i'm concerned shows up in this episode
0: towards the end i'm assuming is what you're talking about okay that makes sense very excited about this and there are subjects in this and i feel like in past episodes we've kept it pretty lighthearted and And maybe somewhat informative with the setting that we're given about a sports show. And we brought in some guests relevant to that. We have some guests that are a little different tonight for this particular episode. As Jeremy and Natalie approach Jeremy meeting Natalie's family. And they come from different religious backgrounds. And we're going to have guests tonight that dive into that exact topic. So a little more heavy, I guess. It's not sad by any means, but it's a little (laughs) heavy, I guess, maybe.
1: We're touching on, on the personal lives a lot more in, in recent episodes. And so it's kind of cool. it's nice to tie that into real life as well. I, I like that. that. Uh, it's been a bit since we've, we've done an episode, so I thought we should take a minute before we get into anything and just kind of recap what's been going on in this show so far. Because all of our... We're, we're hitting that apex of the season. Everything's going to start rolling downhill and wrapping itself up. So let's think about what are our big plot points going on so far in the first season. Dana and Casey. Will they, won't they? That's a constant. We've got Jeremy and Natalie, an official full-fledged couple now. Now we've got them dealing with couple problems, like you just mentioned. Dan, going after Rebecca. Things seem to be working there. Isaac, still on the fringe about being worried with the whole Luther Sachs situation. And Dana, majorly worried that Gordon is about to drop her like a bag of dirt.
0: I think it's funny that you brought this great synopsis of the first 15 episodes, essentially. We have a very almost paralleled synopsis in this episode, mid-episode where Jeremy, after a Shakespeare reference, comes in and basically makes the first 12 minutes of the episode completely (laughs) moot. So we'll discuss that when we get there as well. And I think it's great that you actually gave us that synopsis because with some of the, the folks who have joined us now on our podcast, I think they're just catching up now to where we've been at this point in our adventures recording this.
1: It's nice... To keep it in mind, I think, just because, like I said, everything's starting to come together, and everything's dovetailing. I think each of these points is going to be addressed at some point in this episode, which is great, because it's not just building and building and setting up these separate storylines. Things are connecting now.
0: This could be, I guess, another one of those—I'm sure we've used this term maybe too much—but one of those quintessential Sports Night episodes. Maybe not the episode that you would show everybody if you're introducing them to the show, but if they— needed to play catch up at any point we kind of just everything is thrown at you in this episode
1: a lot of exposition given in this, like you said jeremy literally sits down and goes okay here's what's up exactly and that's that's it
0: (laughs) it was it was basically a shakespeare character after a shakespeare reference was made giving everybody a chance to catch up to where all of us are at
1: jeremy was the little wind is what he
0: was the little wind it was basically like the second act of a shakespeare play where some character comes out and gives a random exposition about what happened to the first act. It's
1: the beginning of several songs in Hamilton where Aaron Burr (laughs) is like, this is what's happening, let's sing about it. Not that I'm complaining,
0: I love Hamilton. If only Jeremy would have done it in hip-hop verse.
1: I I want to say this getting into it, and I'll talk more about it when we get done with it. This episode feels weird to me. It looks a little bit weird, and the pacing is very slow. I think because... It's that slow news day because everyone is just kind of like bored. So there's not a lot of like running around. We got to take care yeah, of this. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of people just like, yep.
0: There's a lot of conversations uh-huh. in this episode it's, it's too.
1: It's very relaxed flow and it just has a lot of angles and I'll, I'll bring them up as they come up. A lot of camera angles that really creeped me out. At one point, so help me God, Jeremy is looking right down the barrel. He is staring at you in the audience when he's in Isaac's office. And that, I literally was, I had to pause and be like, can I see his pupils? Is he looking at me? It was a little bit crazy.
0: Well, this was a Robert Berlinger directed episode, and this was his third go-around for the first season of Sports Night, and the first two episodes that he directed were The Six Southern Gentlemen of Tennessee and Smokey, and when we talked about Six Southern Gentlemen especially, there was a lot of change in terms of the camera angles and a lot of the cinematography and a lot of the editing and a lot of the pans that we saw, so... I can see why you, you know, we talked about the cinematics of those episodes, fits considering who is oh, yeah. directing this episode. There's a lot of
1: one-shots, and I feel like really pretty close-up, square, just like looking at someone's bust, sort yeah. of, right in their face. And I swear to you, Jeremy is looking at us at one point. It <laughs> Almost broke out. the fourth wall at that point? I, I was Isaac Jaffe, and that was a lot of pressure I wasn't ready for on that one. Sally, originally aired on February 23rd, 1999, written by Rachel Sweet and Aaron Sorkin. And as we said, directed by Robert
0: Berlinger, Rachel Sweet. She has her own Wikipedia page. I, I first spent quite a few minutes on her <laughs> Wikipedia page. I mean, when you look at you know any Wikipedia page for a television show, typically the directors, maybe the main writer will have a link. Or if it was somebody who has a particularly lengthy career or resume, they'll have maybe a Wikipedia link to it. Rachel Sweet has a Wikipedia link. And man, is her resume extensive. The deeper
1: I got into her page, I was like, what? What? It was like one of those figures from history where you're like, no, they weren't involved in that, too. Like, how could they possibly have been there, too? She's done just about everything you can do in show business. She's a renaissance woman, it, it turns out. H-
0: hit me with some of the some of the particulars. All right. Here. I wrote down a little bio for her.
1: So she's a writer, producer, actor, and singer? She produced and uh, wrote for shows like Dharma and Greg the Nanny, George Lopez, Hot in Cleveland, and Two Broke Girls, which is one of the worst shows I've ever seen (laughs) in my life. I just need to get that (laughs) off my chest. With Sports Night, she produced 22 episodes. She wrote or co-wrote, I want to say two episodes, I think it was, this and then another. Uh, She's in Seinfeld as George's cousin in the episode, uh, the the contest, when he goes to visit his mother at the hospital. That's right. And there's the sponge bath with the women next door. That's her, so that's another thing right there. She had her own... TV show on what would have become Comedy Central called The Sweet Life, she wrote and sung the theme song for Clarissa Explains It All.
0: That is incredible. For both of us as 90s children to have the Clarissa Explains It All
1: songwriter I as part the, of this podcast. When we mentioned that off mic, we both immediately could start singing it. Because there's <laughs> we, not a lot to it. No, I mean it's it's, it's
0: just na na na. Way cool, all right, all right, and then just a nice instrumental underneath it. So I'm not saying it was the most extensive no. writing process, but you had to. somebody had to write but
1: it. But catchy enough that 20-something years later where I'd be like, oh, yeah, that song. I know that song. She also wrote several songs for the Crybaby musical, so the movie based on the Johnny Depp movie. She wrote, and I think she wrote is she at least performed the song Hairspray from Hairspray, okay. the original one. She's all over the place. She started putting out albums in 1978 and all through the 80s, these little kind of weird like it seemed to me like b-level pop hits but they were still they were things that were i'm amazed by this woman and i think we could do a whole new podcast just about (laughs) rachel sweet
0: (laughs) so she again singer actor producer writer she was basically like childish gambino before (laughs) childish gambino existed she was donald glover (laughs) (laughs) of like the 90s before donald glover was donald glover this
1: we need to find her we need to give her a call (laughs) or shoot her an email and see if she'd like to come on and talk we could do a a mini episode that's just like rachel sweet talk to me about whatever you want she could read out of a phone book and i just want to hear her talk right now because i'm i'm just fascinated with this chick
0: she bought madonna's former home and then sold it for five million bucks that's impressed that's one hell of a flip job right there (laughs) i'm speechless here rachel sweet co-wrote this episode
1: oh man (laughs)
0: Sorry, sorry. No, that's great. I'm, I'm blown like, away this, by this Rachel speech. This was
1: awesome. Our synopsis for Sally. With no news to investigate, Dan has plenty of time to try and figure out with whom Casey slept the prior week. Jeremy can nurture his fears about spending the weekend with Natalie's parents. And Dana can try to be calm and mature as she wonders why Gordon canceled the date. So all cylinders are firing here. Every storyline we've we've set up, basically, is, is right here and ready to go, which I mean, it's, it's good. There's a lot going on. I really do enjoy this episode. It opens up with Real quiet guitar riff, Snuffy just hitting some finger picking, and the crew basically sitting in the newsroom just twiddling thumbs. No one seems to be doing anything, and everyone is saying how incredibly slow the day is. There's no news to report quite so,
0: yet. So far, it's about noon because uh, they said when did the game start in about seven hours, so it's about noonish during the day. Sunlight's pouring through, and this is part of the business. So this is there is a significant amount of hurry up and wait in this business. So much of it. Because, especially when you work in the studio, you're like, alright, we gotta get this and this and this and this and this. Alright, but now we're waiting for this game to end. And we have to wait until that happens then we can continue with our jobs. Or, alright, we have everything prepared that we possibly can, but now we have to wait for this other show to be done in front of us before we can even worry about anything we're doing. So, significant amount of hurry up and wait in this business.
1: It's cool that you get to see that side of things where so much of the show is taking place seemingly in the chaos of of things that are changing and we're living in the moment, but Yeah, these moments happen too, right? You can't make news happen. You have to wait for it to happen. So just seeing the crew, just seeing them kind of swirling coffee cups and flipping through the paper and literally just staring into space, I thought it's nice to see them without just calling out numbers and pressing buttons. It's like their moment. Matter of fact, uh, the DVD set has commentary with all of them as they walk through this episode. A lot of inside baseball, not even like... Not together, nothing against them not even like necessarily interesting inside baseball <laughs> it's like them they must not have gotten together for a long time they're doing a lot of like what was the name of that AD oh yeah Paul how he's doing you know it, it, not a whole lot of really great stuff but a few things peppered in there that I'll mention as we go it's cool to hear them talk as people too and not yeah, just kind of yeah. little side characters we get to a new scene where Dan and Casey are sitting also bored both on the couch just staring into space again my note says weird camera angle it's like a low angle felt like it was kind of far back, almost. uh, Yeah, and it's set so you're looking up at them, and they're both just sitting there. It's very, I mean, I guess it feels uncomfortable, which I guess is maybe what they're feeling, so that could be intentional, but it's also just strange. The guys are in the midst of discussing Casey's lost, or not lost, favorite shirt. Casey says, I didn't say I couldn't find it, I just don't have it. And so this leads Dan to conclude he's had sex.
0: Wait, leave it alone. Oh my goodness gracious. Danny. You had sex with a woman no yes no you did i didn't you went to a woman's apartment and there you had wine, and there you had sex you are way off base that is not what happened except yes that's what happened <laughs> casey fun so proud of you never liked you at all you've got that rosy glow about you I like how uh, Casey's like really
1: adamantly denying it for a little bit. And then he goes, but yes, that's what happened. <laughs> he's just—he's not like bragging or proud. In fact, you can tell he's, kinda he's kind of conflicted about it.
0: A, feels, feels a little awkward about it.
1: But Dan's pride really made me kind of just smile to see him be like, my man, look at you yeah, getting out he, there. He got
0: out there. There is a laugh track after that line that Casey said, well, yes, that is what happened. So we do have a semblance of a laugh track in this episode once again.
1: Cut over to a new scene where Jeremy is inexplicably in Isaac's office just talking to Isaac and Dana, and he's laying on this one storyline for us right away. Natalie has asked him to come visit her family in Ohio for Easter weekends, which is great. Hey, that's nice. We're having this relationship. These things are bound to happen. But he is really worried about the whole Jewish thing. He's worried because he is Jewish, and as he says, Natalie's family is, you know, incredibly not. So he's not sure, you know, we're going to have to go to church, we're going to have to go to dinners. Is this going to be okay?
0: That is a Sorkinism, I guess. You could consider that to be a Sorkinism, so incredibly not. Because we've heard that in multiple uh, Sorkin episodes. I think West Wing, when Ainsley Hayes is talking about Lionel Tribby or something like that, I I think that's when he used it in that particular show. I'm a Republican, and Lionel Tribby is... I'm Jewish.
2: And her family is, you know, incredibly not.
1: I really like his explanation of why... He's worried her parents won't like him because there are some who believe that I killed their Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> not, not me, me personally. personally. I really like how Jeremy is so freaked out. He's really going on a nice run here. He's, he's making Godfather references. He's getting real specific about how he clearly wasn't the one who killed Jesus Christ. <laughs> but it's it's just really funny and, and really kind of endearing
0: to see him care that much about not wanting Natalie's family to hate him. Do you remember meeting Lauren's parents for the first half?
1: Uh, I remember the nervousness, but I'm, I'm struggling to remember the exact time. It was a family party, and Lauren introducing me to her grandfather by saying boyfriend was a big deal for me. Because oh, I was wow. like, oh, is that – am I your boyfriend? Oh, so you were, did you not well, – no, how, how like, long into this been, was it? This had been several months. Like, okay, probably, so it's not like a weird no, thing no, no, to
0: hear, no. but just to hear it in that Like that solidified of it. It's like, well, no, I Hello, family. This right. is not just my friend who is a boy – he is my boyfriend. That, that is, is a different. Right. That's a different animal. Right
1: I don't there. mean to sound like I was a little like I was freaked out by it, but I was sort of like, all right, that's locked in. Okay, Good. I don't need to worry about all it right, anymore. Right. You know, like it was one of those. Well, we're seeing each other. We're dating. Oh, there was yeah, there was right. no wishy-washy. Right, in but in just terms to get, have a label status. on it. Status, kind
0: of, yeah. It's this was this was locked in. Facebook official and everything. I'm sure. So in a way, in I can
1: I can sympathize with Jeremy
0: there. <laughs> a little more background about him. He
1: says his family's from Latvia, so we get a little heritage out of him. Right. Uh, and then <laughs> maybe the best part of the scene as he asks Isaac for his opinion and Isaac kind of comes back like, oh, God, were you talking to me the whole time? <laughs> Cause this, is, this is so typical Isaac Jaffe. People flock to him as he is the father figure and give him all their personal stories and, and worries, but he really wants nothing to do with
0: it. This whole first section of the show, of this episode, is basically devoted to everybody coming in and just dumping their problems <laughs> to their father figure isaac jaffe i think dana has a line where she says you know you're not our bartender and then basically treats then him gets like right bartender, into it yeah. yeah
1: it's uh this is robert yum hitting that sweet spot too we talked about it several episodes back where janet ashikaga said that he was really great with the little quips the little and the, quips the little and comedy lines yep. he, he wasn't so comfortable with the big runs no big runs lots of little quips for, for isaac in this episode which is great they basically must have been like all right uh robert you're just gonna sit behind the desk <laughs> He is as sarcastic as you possibly can. And and he does a great job doing it. And it was fantastic, yeah. So Jeremy leaves as uh, Dana kind of encourages him to go do his job, despite the fact that there is literally nothing for him to do since there's no news. And then as you just said, she starts to spill her personal problems on Isaac. Uh, But it turns out that Gordon stood her up yesterday. This is bad. We just finally felt like things were going in a good way. They went skiing. Things were picking up. But then he stood her up. And now she's a little bit freaked out. He had to work late. I'm sure he did, but I'm not feeling very confident or comfortable with it. More little Wikipedia. I was all over Wikipedia on this episode. Yeah, this is big time. They were supposed to go to dinner and a late show at Rainbow and Stars. I did some look and some research. I think that this was in the Rainbow Room in Rockefeller Center there, but it was like a cabaret. There was a little stage they would put on shows there, and that was where they would have gone. But according to what I was reading, it closed in 1998, that particular room.
0: Yeah, there's an article from the New York Times in December of 98 that says Last Dance at the Rainbow right. Room.
1: Right. So I feel like this must have been filmed prior to that time. And then, you know, because in the world of our show, it's, it's February. February, yep. But I feel like they probably filmed it, you know, months before when it was still existent. Yeah. But... There you go. So that's where they were going to be going, right Right close to the office there, right right down the street as far as I think the geography works.
0: I wonder if Aaron Sorkin had his own New York renaissance, and that was like one of his favorite spots. Oh, That, that very well could be. It's like, hey, yeah, this is the place of Cole Porter and Theorella LaGuardia <laughs> and the Rainbow Room with rainbow and stars.
1: We also get a weird, uh, this is that kind of classic Sorkin woman that's really freaked out in her personal life and can't handle it very well, right? We've talked about how that's not one of his strengths as a writer, is writing strong women in relationships. Sure. But a little meta where Dana kind of acknowledges that. She's like, I don't want to be that woman. I don't want to be crazy. I should be confident. Things are fine. So she sort of addresses like, I shouldn't freak out. This is okay. He had to work late. It happens. But she's still on the inside freaking out.
0: I actually wrote down that phrase, I, uh, I think it was when, later when Natalie and Dana are talking, like, you don't want to be that woman. And I didn't know exactly what she meant by that woman, but that makes sense when you say that. She doesn't want to be the clingy or codependent type of woman that I do feel like maybe Aaron Sorkin has a tendency to write. I do like the fact, though, that Dana is very layered in this episode. Because it's one thing, yeah, she, she's freaking out. We, we see her neuroses on full display for almost the entirety of the episode. But the one thing I do like here is when Casey comes in, and he's the third of three to dump all of his problems <laughs> on Isaac. When he walks in and goes, hey, how was last night? And Dana lies to him to cover up what she's feeling. That's a layer that you yeah. have to add. And and I know like for most of us who have already been in the room when she's you know kind of spilling her guts to Isaac, we know that she's freaking out. But Casey doesn't necessarily know that. And she does a good job of playing it off like, yeah, it was great, and we laughed, and this, and just walks out the room. And Casey almost doesn't, you know, he's not able to give that at second thought because that's a pretty layered character right. in Dana right now. So I will give Rachel Sweet and Aaron Sorkin credit for that, giving a little bit of layered, uh, a layered feel to Dana.
1: I do like that self-awareness that she has where she sort of is acknowledging, don't be crazy, you know, stay cool, stay calm. And the fact that she can face Casey of all people and stay cool and come up with that kind of lie on the fly. Yeah, you're right. Dana is layered. She's showing some strength, at least some, like, control
0: over herself, which is great to see. And she's done that before, too. It's not like this is a new thing for her, but she's shown that right. off in the past throughout this episode, throughout this series. So as she goes out, like you said, Casey
1: comes in, and he immediately sits down and talks about how he had sex with a woman for the first time since he and Lisa split up. It was a woman he hardly knows. He's having some conflicting feelings, and he obviously needs to address his unresolved feelings. Dana and you just see isaac is had enough as he gets up and, and sort of is exasperated and says keep talking but i need to start drinking which is just that's that character in a nutshell i feel like i have a lot of memories of him walking around his desk over to that bar
0: in the corner yeah and basically he became the bartender in in that in that moment he became his own bartender just to save himself <laughs> from having to listen to everybody dumping their problems but i think everybody's pretty self-aware in this opening ...seen in Isaac's office. Jeremy's pretty self-aware. He knows he's freaking out about meeting Natalie's parents. Dana's freaking out about Gordon, but is trying to calm herself down. And Casey is working through everything that he's dealing with.
1: It's also nice to see that 16 episodes in now, we know the characters enough... That even if they didn't sort of explain their feelings, we would know their feelings. Yeah. But they explained it in a way that works for the character, too. As they're all a little bit neurotic, they're all a little bit worried about the feelings they're feeling. Even though they know exactly why they're feeling that way. And they're able to, to handle them in a
0: way that doesn't just feel cheap. It feels like real people with real problems. And another laugh track when Isaac delivers the final line of this scene. Ugh,
1: I feel like with this lap, in this particular episode, it was like three people gathered around a microphone that
0: they were just like,
1: "Want to try?" It just, just like
0: three, two, <laughs> ah! <laughs>
1: like that's it. Yeah, it's, that was that
0: was it. That's how they created that particular lap track.
1: Right there, not a huge like roaring crowd at all, which makes it even worse. I feel yeah, like I just think so. go for it. We just to... cut it
0: completely at this point. Well, we're getting closer. We're getting, getting closer. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting, waiting for the very, day very when very I can get through it. making making my notes and not write lab lab track. track. There it is. Well, the fact that we can point it out the two or three times you know we've hit the quota we're almost at the quota now at this point for the episode for laugh tracks we go
1: to a commercial uh we come back up to the skyline it's always a little sad to see that skyline but it is what it is uh jeremy is (laughs) out in the middle of the studio basically Fix it up eggnog, and he's got the fixins. He's got like four dozen eggs, a huge
0: bottle of brandy. He's really making his eggnog. Is that what that was? Brandy? Yeah. I don't know. I, it should I, be. If it's well, when did like did you drink eggnog as traditional? Yeah, as a traditional. Because remember, I'm not. I'm not. I right, didn't grow right. up Christian. I didn't grow up celebrating Christmas. So eggnog was the most foreign substance to me, and I still to this day have never had eggnog. It's not.
1: The greatest, I really love to load the nutmeg in it, just cover it with a layer of nutmeg. What does it taste like? It's like, uh it really just tastes like frothy eggs. Like, like pancake batter? Kind of. Is it sweet? It can be. Okay. Depends on what you really put in it. I really, as probably, there's purists out there, I'm sure, that are like, oh, that's not real eggnog. But there's a there's a bottle you can buy that says, the brandy's in it, Like, so you don't have to mix it yourself. Okay. And that's about as good as it gets, I think. Okay. It's a delicate, it can be really gross, but it can also be okay. All right but for i give Jeremy credit for going in there and seemingly making yeah, he it didn't from just scratch he didn't just buy <laughs> like
0: i don't know is there a tropicana eggnog i don't think there is but there he didn't be. he didn't just buy like the jewel he's not popping store- a carton yeah, yeah yeah it's not the carton of eggnog that you get a jewel or whatever so
1: an interesting note here although natalie and dana who are watching him from the editing booth and are sort of like well, what's going on out there He wants to impress her parents, Natalie says, so he's trying eggnog. Dana acknowledges. He knows that no one drinks eggnog at Easter. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Right. It's a a Christmas thing. Here's the interesting note. This episode, at least according to the commentary, was originally written to be around the Christmas season, but it got pushed back. And they kind of left the framework and adjusted some things to fit the storylines that filled in in the middle. They left the eggnog. And I think it just makes a funny little character move for Jeremy to be that... Anxious that he's like, well, uh, this is what Catholics do, right? <laughs>
0: like, right, so, so that's really cool. So they rewrote that basically on the fly, essentially, because they it, it, they're like, all right, this is not going to be the Christmas episode, or we're not going to make this around Christmas time. Right. So let's just add something in there to justify Jeremy doing this, right?
1: So they kept it like, uh, presumably he would have been going back around around Christmas, obviously. Um, but it's yeah, it is cool that they were able to just tweak the story just enough. Just throw a couple details in and keep going with it.
0: And that makes sense when we're talking about the Rainbow Room thing, where you, if you wrote in the Rainbow Room stuff, you would have expected the episode to be around Christmas, and maybe that was just like, ah, well, nobody's gonna know. There you go. That that part we'll leave in. It's no big deal.
1: So in the editing booth, which is also great because you could see Jeremy standing in the background <laughs> through the window for a lot That's of a nice the shots. Nice subtle touch. Yeah, he's just still out there just like mixing, lifting things up as if he's like a, a mad scientist <laughs> yeah. in a laboratory. We've got Natalie and Dana supposed to be working on a North Carolina basketball game. Natalie keeps throwing out different the i think it's defensive terms the the box in one one. is
0: is four of your five defenders in a box basically at the corners of the lane are expanded and the one guards man to man while everybody else plays zone and basically if it's one guy on the other team that you really have to shut down you throw out the box and one it is still probably the one of the more rare things that i see in college but if i see the so box this would one, be
1: newsworthy they would have mentioned like checkout running no box now, in no one. it was
0: run a lot more in the 90s ah. and it's gone away significantly over the last probably 15 years maybe even 10 years
1: interesting as hard as natalie is pushing to talk about this box and one over and <laughs> over again dana keeps distracting herself she keeps going and worrying she keeps first as she's done this before trying to convince herself things are good everything is good And Natalie's like, great, let's talk about, you know, let's work. There's an editing machine here. Wow, let's get to work. And Dana just can't get to it.
0: I wrote down constant justifier. Dana is a constant justifier. Her neuroses, everybody else's quirks and foibles. She's consistently trying to justify everything that's happening around her. No, everything's okay. Well, then something else creeps into her head. And then she tries to justify all of it very hard. Well, no, he was working late and he wouldn't stand me up. Gordon would never do that. Gordon loves me. And then she rethinks everything again, and then tries to rejustify everything again.
1: I have a note that just says, "Natalie looks great." <laughs> I just want to <laughs> make sure And Dana that's does
0: compliment Natalie's she body does, at some does, point like too. Like? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and she's also Natalie in this episode. I think is terrific because she is just calling it out, and she's doing yeah. it, or she's trying to do it in a very nice way, very friendly way. Uh, and she just is being very, very blunt with Dana as she's worried. Don't call him. It's not going to be cute. It's not going to be endearing. Don't do it. You're just going to like dig a hole. Relax, relax. And she just, try as she may,
0: cannot get Dana off this ledge. And she continues to do so throughout the mixture of these scenes. This is kind of uh, helpful to the pace of this episode because we kind of, now we jump. Now we jump from yes. scene to scene to scene. We pick up where we left off when we left the scene, when we come back to it. So there, this does help the pacing a little bit uh, until we get to the second act of the episode
1: speaking of scenes we cut from there into the office where dan and casey are having lunch again weird angles it's like a really close angle of dan holding like a styrofoam cup yeah cup takes up most of the frame i think it's like a weird choice uh but they're talking about this shirt still why don't you have your shirt what happened turns out he spilled some wine on it she threw it in the wash i'll let them do the talking
0: i spilled wine she offered to throw it in the laundry. I told her not to go to any trouble. Oh, it's no trouble. But then morning comes around. And you don't feel like sticking around for the shirt to get out of the dryer. So I put my jacket on over my t shirt. Slink going home. I didn't slink. What time was it? It's was about 6 a.m. just getting light outside? Yeah. Jacket over the t shirt. Like I said. You slinked. Dan. You slinked, my young friend. And I've never felt
1: closer to you in my entire life. <laughs> You slinked, my young friend.
0: <laughs> I wrote down you're slinking at six a.m. That's prime slinking time. <laughs> like there is no no better slinking time than than six a.m. Admittedly, I've done my fair share of slinking, <laughs> and I know slinking when I hear or see it.
1: It's it's interesting to see Casey doing the walk of shame here. Although he said, it's not, it doesn't seem to be shame. He just seems like oh no, like this is a new thing for him. Yeah. This was,
0: you know, I think as Dana aptly points out later, this is after 10 years of kind of a drag of a right. marriage more than anything else. And
1: and Dan is just fantastic throughout all of this, where he's just so, like, he's really, like, smiling and nodding. Like, you you little <laughs> devil, <laughs> you here. Yeah. He's, he's very excited and proud. He would say "That's you slinked, my young friend, and I've never felt closer to you in my entire life. Yeah, he's
0: very clearly very proud of his, uh, I think, what he would call a protege <laughs> at this point. Since episode one, he's been trying to get him to get out of the house. Finally and, happened. And finally he got out.
1: We go back into the editing booth where Dana and Natalie are still sitting, Dana on the phone, fumbling all over the place. The reason for this call? There's there's no reason for this call. She just can't bring herself to even mention, hey, why didn't you show up last night? What happened? Tell me the truth. And I love Natalie sitting on the couch
0: in the background just like, oh, God, (laughs) abort, abort. What is this noise? Uh, There was no reason for this call. I don't know why that, that sound was so funny to me, but that was just a really funny noise to me more than anything else. I didn't expect that noise to come out of Dana, but I guess that when she's in, as nervous as she is about this whole process, I guess weird noises come out of you, but that just made me laugh.
1: We know Felicity Hoffman can deliver some comedic gold, yeah, yeah. and I feel like the the more neurotic and crazy Dana gets, the funnier... The performance gets a lot of the time, and that's, I mean, that sound you're not going to get in some of these more serious moments on the show. So, oh, it is just, it is, all right, I feel like I criticized the episode at the (laughs) beginning. It's a great episode. In the middle of this conversation, Dana flips a switch and suddenly very happy and smiling. That'd be great. This is awesome. He makes a new date, Gordon does. He's going to come by tonight for the show, then they're going to go out
0: afterwards. His tone of voice apparently was very positive. The tone of voice apparently takes on a life of its own in uh, in this script. I wrote tone of voice was bubbly, seemingly, for Gordon. Casey's got a rosy glow about him. I think if you connect the dots, everybody's banging away. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. Everybody's just banging away. And that apparently has lifted the moods of two previously morose human beings.
1: Jeremy is so scared of not being banging away <laughs> that he's, he's trying to figure out eggnog in March. <laughs> like There's all
0: sorts of weird stuff going down here.
1: Uh, Dana says she feels strange still even though it's good it feels strange and here's natalie again being real well i know why it feels strange and she gets a little harsh here you don't really like gordon right and it's nice that she is kind of trying to be like look you're just maybe setting yourself up to fall a little more yeah you've been really upset in this relationship maybe it's time not to invest so much of yourself into it but it does get a little bit intense here when she says i like gordon i love gordon and natalie hits her with a a little spear of truth here.
2: I love Gordon, I'm telling and you. And I'm just... telling you that when you use that word in a romantic context, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Well, no.
3: Box in one. That was a lousy thing to say about Gordon. I didn't say it about Gordon. I said it about you.
1: So it gets awkward.
0: It gets quiet. That's was a little ballsy, I thought, from Natalie. More than anything it was. Else, I, I thought she that stands was, up. That was intense. There is a difference between like and love, right? I think you can like someone and not love them. I think you can oh, love somebody and not maybe really like them.
1: I agree wholeheartedly with both of those conditions. And, and it's... I feel like, it seems like, at least in this character's position, Dana likes the idea of having someone like Gordon more than anything else. She likes having that kind of solid relationship. And... We've been seeing nothing but problems from the two of them for a while, so she certainly can't be feeling great, even if his tone of voice was really good, you know?
0: I do hear another Sorkinism during that run. Natalie says, I'm I'm not not other other people. people. This
3: is you and me talking, Dana. I'm not other people.
0: I'm not other people. I'm not other people. I'm not other people. Don't talk to me like I'm other people.
3: And don't talk to me like I'm
0: other people. And and that's a very common Sorkinism and Sorkin phrase, and, and that usually comes in scenes... Where, I mean, you're trying to kind of lay down the hammer, and as we go forward, Natalie really does, as, as we heard, lays down that hammer about Gordon.
1: It's awkward. It's quiet. Dana says, I'm calling him again. I want privacy. So Natalie's going to go get some Fritos, uh, and as he, she goes out, she talks to Jeremy. She's really asking him lots of questions, laying things on him, and he's just sort of nodding. Before she realizes, he's still got eggnog in his mouth. Just swallow it. He does not like it. He uh, just can't. And, <laughs> and, it, and it just out. comes
0: pouring out. It is pretty gross. Uh, that, w- that was a little bit disgusting. I credit the slapstick, the high level of slapstick from uh, Joshua Molina in that particular scene. It was a quick turn. Went very fast from uh, kind of serious tone to uh, slapstick relatively quickly. Did you get the William Sapphire reference initially? Because I didn't know... I had to do some research. You knew who he was at the very knew, least. He, I,
1: I knew that he was a speechwriter. I don't know anything else
0: beyond the fact that he was a speechwriter. So I did do some research on him. William Sapphire, spelled S-A-F-I-R-E. A Syracuse dropout, of course, that's where Aaron Sorkin went to college. He eventually became a trustee of the university and at one point delivered commencement addresses. While well, maybe Sorkin might have been a student, but he wouldn't have probably been a part of the commencement addresses anyway. Uh, he was Jewish, of Jewish descent. He was part of Richard Nixon's presidential campaign twice, in 1960 and in 1968, and when Nixon won, he became Nixon and Spiro Agnew's speechwriter. There was the Apollo 11 speech that he wrote, but nobody ever had to deliver. The the
1: if-they-got-stranded-on-the-moon speech.
0: If-they-got-stranded-on-the-moon speech, so uh, that's pretty impressive to have on your resume. He became a columnist for the New York Times, and the reason we keep diving into this is because I think this is somewhat relevant to what's been going on this week. He became a target for wiretaps authorized by Richard Nixon. So 2017 parallels. (laughs) How about that? Uh, Eventually became a Pulitzer Prize winner. George W. Bush gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2006, and uh, he passed away seven years ago in 2009.
1: Very nice.
3: Then thank you, William Sapphire. That's nice... That's you, a
0: good you, I, you know, and, and I think I'll remember more about William Sapphire because we researched it and talked about it and frankly about Rachel Sweet than I ever would have known or memorized otherwise. I
1: will never forget Rachel Sweet going <laughs> I think it's impossible for
0: us to forget <laughs> Rachel Sweet at this point.
1: We go to a commercial and come back in the newsroom. Everyone is still sitting there, bored out of their minds, spinning around.
0: And this is truly... A second act, because <laughs> not only of the meta Shakespeare reference, but this basically becomes like the second act of a Shakespeare play. And really, what do you think about what's going to happen eventually? This really is like a Shakespeare play.
3: Anybody remember Solanio and Solario Yes. Chris.
0: Salanio and Solario
3: From *The Merchant of
0: Venice*.
3: Yes. Yes, you remember them? Yes. Elliot.
0: What? Do you want to know if you remember them? I don't believe I do.
3: They brought news. News of Antonio and his ship and the state of Shylock's loan to Bassanio. They helped to keep the audience up to date. The Venticelli, they were called the Little Winds. Man, this is about as bored as I have ever been in my life. Jeremy, good Jeremy, what ho? What ho? What news, Jeremy? Why is she speaking like this? She thinks
0: she's Sacco and Vanzetti.
3: Solanio and Solario.
0: The Little Winds.
1: The Venticelli. Yes. So there he is, Jeremy, bringing the news. It's great. He kind of sits and he's like, okay. He like gets that real squared right in front of everybody. Let me tell you what's happening.
0: I love the uh, Sacco and Vanzetti reference because I feel like you and I kind of learned about Sacco and Vanzetti right around the same time in school. Yep. They were Italian-born American anarchists, and we always had to like spend time because they, they had some kind of Chicago ties or Chicago roots. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but they really pushed Sacco and Vanzetti <laughs> to us when we were in like elementary school or junior high. Jeremy
1: fills in the crew, being a true Shakespearean little wind, carrying in the news to get
0: us going. So, when Jeremy delivers this speech, does it not make the first dozen minutes of this episode moot? I mean, like, does he. I mean, I, I get that that's why we call it the Shakespeare reference. He's catching everybody up. But we could have just flipped to like 12 minutes in and we would have known exactly what's gone down. You're completely right.
1: <laughs> he could have walked in at the end of the part where they're standing there complaining about having no news to talk about at the opening of the sure, show. We could have we all the picked news it now, right yeah. up from there. It is a lot of people just telling each other how they feel in this episode. Uh, we go to the new scene in the office where our guys are still talking. Dan doing one of my favorite pastimes, putting into a cup, just working on the that short into game. The cup. I really was doing do. it like a
0: week ago. and <laughs> You do have the floor for it. I feel like that it's a tough lie here where we're recording loud. this.
1: It gets very loud. Yeah, of
0: course. just
1: down the, the you know, wood these, there.
0: These but. hardwood floors, I feel like it's a, it's a tough lie.
1: I do love putting into a cup. But he's there, and he's very proud at where he does sort of a... Uh, Brag question where he says, I haven't asked who it is, knowing damn well that he's going to start asking who it is because that's really what he needs. But he says, That's not what men do. Men don't do that. But please tell me, is it this person? Is it this person? Is it this person? Casey just doesn't want to tell him. Sure, I don't want to talk about it. Leave it alone. So we head into another scene. It is a lot of quick scenes. The pacing did pick up midway through. I'm looking at my notes and it's like, scene, scene, scene. So, yeah. Again, I'm sorry, episode for talking bad about you at the beginning. <laughs> We're back in the editing room, uh, where now Dana wants to know if she, Natalie thinks Casey's been seeing Sally.
0: And Dana brings up Sally, like out of the out of nowhere. Like I feel like we haven't seen a whole lot of Sally as of late over the course of the last few episodes. If I didn't know the title of this episode, Sally, and had Dana not brought it up, would You have even thought about Sally at any point in this episode? I don't
1: think I would have. And I think this was an era of TV where unless you had, like, the TV guide open in front of you, you probably didn't even know the episode name. Yeah, because it's not like
0: now where I can just hit info on my my Xfinity or whatever and it pops up. So it
1: becomes a a question of – well, not really a question, but it becomes uh, we know Sally is going to be an important figure in this. Sure. Because she's the name of the episode and she here, the midway point, is just finally mentioned. So – it's a nice like. Oh yeah, what about Sally? Yeah, what about Do you think tell us Casey more about Sally? Sally yeah. And as an audience, we we don't know right now. You know, we're like, oh yeah, I forgot about this whole uh, little inadvertent love triangle they've got going on because it hasn't been around. Yep. Natalie shuts it down in a hurry. She's like, of course he's not. I would know if he was. There's no way. But then they decide to say, you know what? Though he's pretty discreet. He's a
0: little sneaky. That Casey McCall discretion very important to Casey, and he's very good at it. But I like where Natalie's at. She's. Again, in her opinion, she's telling it like it is. I mean, as we find out, she may or may not be wrong, but she's at least being definitive about everything she's saying and also telling Dana and Dana telling Natalie that they both have good bodies, which is nice for both of them. But this is a pretty important line, and it's kind of, as we kind of know what's about to happen, even if we don't know what's going to happen, we already have the feeling like, all right, they brought up Sally. The episode's called Sally. We might see Sally relatively soon. So we have a sense, what's about to come, and that line that Natalie says.
3: You know how I know Casey is not seen Sally? How? Because he really cares about you, and he knows it would hurt your feelings.
0: That's that that hits harder, I think, because we already have the sense of what's forthcoming. Right. It's
1: setting the. It's really setting up for the fall. So yeah, you'd be yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does care about her feelings. You guys have this relationship. He would never do that. And then, lo and behold, the very next scene. Guess who? Sally waltzes in, and it becomes. Abundantly obvious immediately. Oh, you have my shirt. So
0: indeed, Casey has been seeing Sally. What was the point of bringing up the shirt when Dan was in there? Like, yeah, she's a little bit subtle. Like, there's no. Hey, that uh, that thing. And she's used, like gesticulating wildly. We and, just like, found
1: out how discreet Casey is. Sally walks in like, oh, I can't find it. The thing it got mixed up in someone else's laundry. She even says the word laundry. The word laundry. And
0: Casey, you see a subtle head turn back towards Dan without. Really looking at him, but there's like a subtle head turn because he's probably thinking, Oh no, she just gave me away.
1: We get some great Dan lines when Sally walks in, at the very least. He really has this hatred for her that he's got the score. You're 19 feet tall. Why are you wearing heels? (laughs) I love that line. I'll tell you what, if you're Brenda Strong, your your self esteem must be through the roof when you get these scripts. Everyone's talking about how hot you are, how your legs go all the way down to the floor. You just had a whole episode where two women are discussing how great your body is on top of everything. Brenna Strong must have been feeling okay after getting through these scripts when she jumped
0: into it. I mean, I wonder if she was method acting at any point, just like treating everybody like crap because she was feeling so good about herself. I hope not.
1: Casey has the brilliant effort to cover up what she was talking about by saying, She was talking about a pair of cross-country skis I lent her. That... Got mixed up in the laundry. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and Dan immediately, as most of us at this point, especially with the added oomph from the previous scene, says this is a recipe for disaster. This is going to be bad. Uh, and immediately says you should not tell Dana. Everyone is looking out to protect Dana. Dan knows it. Natalie just mentioned it. This is going to devastate her if, if the truth comes
0: out about it. So, so everybody knows how bad it would be, except seemingly for Casey, which, again, when you really think about it, it's hard to fault Casey right now. Sally's clearly uh, interested in him and has been flirting with him for quite some time. She's clearly very attractive, and the perception of her is that she's very attractive. And after a 10-year marriage, he's now been out of the marriage for what? Like It was like six months at the beginning of the show, and now it's probably what, four or five months, maybe even six months. And it was about a year.
1: Close to a year Close least.
0: to a year, so how do you fault the guy for it? It's, it's tough, and he's so good at being discreet. And everybody compliments his discretion. Why would he ever have any assumption that Sally would kind of blow his cover at this point? But you never think somebody's going to blow your cover until they blow <laughs> your cover. So One little uh, nitpick on this scene as well. Sally
1: asks Stan if he feels diminutive because she's wearing heels. And he says, No, but now I have to look up that word.
0: He has to he know has what to mean. He has a writer. Come on.
1: Going into a new scene. We're back in Isaac's office. Jeremy comes sidling in. Throws out some more Bible stuff. A lot more of these tight close-ups as, as they're talking to each other. And this is where, and I think we should try and find a screenshot of it and put it on the website if I'm right. I swear to God, Jeremy is looking into the camera while he is talking for a part of the scene. He's talking to
0: Isaac but talking to us. And it's a little bit freaky. It's a weird, weird choice for like three seconds right there. Again, some some heavier stuff religion-wise, You know, talking about some specific Bible verses and things like that. Obviously, there's a bit of a lighthearted portion of this scene when Jeremy talks about how does this relate to the bunny rabbit. (laughs) That's a pretty good line. (laughs) But some, some heavier stuff in this particular scene. So to parallel Jeremy and Natalie coming from different religious backgrounds, I thought it'd be cool to bring in some friends of mine. Dory is a freelance writer in South Florida. And Joey is a software developer. Both are fans of Sports Night and, coincidentally enough, fans of our podcast as they've started to binge watch and catch up with our podcast, which we certainly appreciate. But I've been friends with Dory for about seven years. I met Joey when the two of them were dating. They got married in June of 2014. You're going to hear some things from Joey and Dory. So for some context, you'll hear them talk about Joey's father. Uh, Joey's father passed away in July of 2015. So Dory is Jewish, Joey is Christian, both are wonderful people, and we appreciate them taking the time to chat with us. And to start, I asked them what the process of merging their families together was like with both sides coming from different religions.
2: It was a little awkward at first, and and it's always intimidating when somebody of a different religion, you know, you have to go in there and you're not sure what to expect. But I mean, I guess thankfully for me, uh, Christianity is based on Judaism, so I took it as an opportunity to, to try to expand my Christianity and learn and to understand what they were doing and how they were doing it and the rituals they did and you know the different saders and things. But but it, it does get awkward at times. Like uh, whenever I go to temple with them, uh, all the Jewish men are wearing yarmulkes uh, and I'm not. So like all of a sudden now I'm in the outsider and I feel left out. Or when my tattoos are showing and it's like oh man, it's like maybe that wasn't that good of a decision. But in the end, they have been more than accepting and loving and, and understanding with me as I try to adapt to them.
3: When I learned how um, involved Joey was with his religion, I was sort of nervous meeting his parents because I am very ish in the Jewish and he is very <laughs> Christian. And so. Um, I didn't get any sort of questions from him when we started dating, but I remember meeting his mom who didn't ask a lot of religious questions, but I, um, his dad was very upfront with questions like, are you a Christian? No, why not? Okay. Uh, Cause I'm Jewish. Okay. Why aren't you, why don't you believe that Jesus is the savior and all this other stuff. It was, it was like a grilling. And so, I don't know. So I held my own and he stuck up for me at points where I felt uncomfortable, but um, actually after that, his dad and I got along really, really well. We always joked with each other, but that first meeting was sort of intimidating, which I think is normal among (laughs) couples. But for us, it was a little bit different because we were not on the same level religion-wise.
0: Kind of going back to just the nerves that Jeremy felt and how scared, seemingly, or apprehensive he was about the whole meeting with Natalie's family. Was there a scary part of that process of merging your lives in the context of your different religions? Was there anything particularly nerve-wracking about that, whether it was the actual process of marriage or whether it was explaining it to your parents or anything along those lines that you remember?
2: Oh, yeah. When we got married, um, our wedding was a little awkward because my dad was sick, so we had a small ceremony before our actual marriage. And the small ceremony took place at my church. And this was the first time that our two families would have been together.
3: When we got married, we got married in his church and I told him I was fine with it. And so, uh, because I was, because when we got married, uh, his dad was was very ill. And so we got married very quickly. So (laughs) like not quickly in a sense of like, it was rushed or we eloped or something. Our families were there and it was a very beautiful ceremony. But when we talked about where are we gonna do this, We wanted to make sure our families were there. We both have very big families. And so he's like, let's just do it at the church. And I was like, okay, it's going to be weird because I'm not Christian. (laughs) And he was like, no, of course not. And our families, I made sure my mom was okay with it. My grandmother was okay with it. And I would say that was more intimidating because not so much that I was getting married in a church, but that we were getting married. So that was a very, like, very nervous time for me. So I... Uh, would say that was probably the most intimidating portion of our of our relationship thus far.
2: You know, we dated for about two years, and I had gone to Passover. I had gone to a bunch of the holidays with Dory and participated in that. And Dory, likewise, had come to my church on and off uh, for different events. But this was the first time that both of our parents were going to meet each other and our, both of our families were going to co-mingle. And it was kind of on in my church, in my territory. So it was an awkward, it's like, how are these Jewish people going to interact when when they're now all of a sudden have to come into a Christian environment. And Dory's mother, I mean, I I love her to death. She is so wonderful, so kind that it didn't faze her. She never felt awkward. She never you know, it's the transition from our families has never been a point of contention.
3: I think when people, like as long as they're honest and, and communicate well in their relationships, then I don't think there will be any setbacks. I mean, I, can, I, I know the hesitancy with like meeting families who are just completely different than the way you were raised. I, you know, we've experienced that. But I, uh, I think as long as you talk it out with each other, then I mean, I'm not here to like dole out relationship advice, but it's worked for me.
0: Was there something in particular that you found fascinating or interesting when you were kind of paralleling Judaism and Christianity, when you were learning more about both religions?
2: Yeah, because in Christianity, you grew up and in, in you it's really the basis. Uh, the teachings of Jesus are what you rely on the most. And every now and then you pop back to the Old Testament and you rely on you know, the things of Moses and the, uh, the prophets like Isaiah and Elijah. But for Judaism, it is a lot of the Old Testament. The majority of the stuff that they go to is stuff from uh, the books of Exodus with Moses or with Elijah. So that that was interesting for me. And what I always considered some of the boring parts of the Bibles, some of the tradition, for them, it's the basis of their religion. All of those rules and regulations that God set down are how they eat and how they dress and how they talk and the way they live. So for me, it's been really interesting to actually have to pay attention to those things.
0: You and I were talking about Jeremy and Isaac, their last scene together, talking about this. And when Jeremy brings up the fact that the word Easter never appears in the Bible, you actually took a look at some of the, I guess, translations of it, and you found something interesting about that.
2: Yeah, so he is correct. that there is normally in all but one translation of the Bible, Easter is not used. And the only reason it was used is from a lazy translation of an Anglo-Saxon version of the Bible. Christianity has always taken uh, pagan holidays and tried to convert them to Christian holidays to help people adapt and transition. You know, Christianity is all about conversion. And the easier you can help people do that, the better. So they assumed uh, the Passover was around the same time because the Passover does move. So they attributed it to the God, uh, the goddess of Easter because that's celebrated in the month of April. And it's kind of always stuck since then. But it has nothing to do with the Easter bunny or any other relation. And it is just a passing term. There's no explanation for what the word Easter means. It's just mentioned, and then the verse moves on. It's it's funny that the commercialization of holidays in general verse, how much of it is actually rooted in tradition and in religious teachings. And for Easter, there's none. I mean, absolutely none. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how to celebrate Easter. It's something that we've kind of taken on ourselves as Christians to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It is an important moment, but there's really not a basis for to make it a big pomp and circumstance.
0: Going back to Jeremy's line, this relates to the bunny rabbit, how? So um, (laughs) (laughs) anything humorous that has popped up while you two have uh, made this merger of your families, it doesn't have to be as uh, slapstick as Jeremy not being able to swallow any eggnog, but is there something that you remember that you kind of think back and and think of it fondly as a funny time?
3: I still make fun of him for this one time. Uh, well, my whole family does, but, uh, he jokes about it too, is, uh, at a few different, uh, events. I guess holidays is a bit, probably a better word. Um, we both get together for each other's holidays, like Easter and Christmas and Hanukkah and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and Passover. Like we are there for each other at both at, at, at any different point. Um, and one time, I know I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Passover. Um, he was just like, "I really don't want to eat matzo balls. They're so gross." And I was like. <laughs> No, that's you're not matzo balls are delicious. You take that back. (laughs) um, My grandma makes them, and you know they're wonderful. How dare you say that? (laughs) And um, he was like, "No, they're not. They're just they're just slimy and gross." And I was like, "He's got to be. What is? I can't believe he's saying this." So we get to dinner. And I, like, passed around a plate of uh, vegetables, and he took some, and some egg salad, and he took some, and then we got to the gefilte fish, and he's like, see, matzo balls are gross. And I was like, that's not a matzo ball, that's gefilte fish, and it was hilarious, although he's right, gefilte, I mean, gefilte fish is gross, I don't like it, <laughs> but... Um, it was funny that he had this sort of, like, mix up with, like, the Jewish foods um, that were still sort of, like, when we get together, I was like, Joe, you sure you don't want a matzo ball? And I show him the fish, and everybody sort of laughs. Um, But it's funny because he's really interested in learning about the different holidays and how they came about. Like, he's very interested in my religion, so it makes me feel comfortable in making sure that he's as involved uh, at the holidays as he can be. So, I mean, we joke about that stuff, but it's not like he's turned off by any of it at all he's actually very very interested
2: i think both of our families are pretty easy and i mean and the other thing is my family is very strict conservative christian but they've been very accepting of dory and likewise dory's you know her mother and her grandmother are very jewish but never once have they condemned me or told me not to do something you know uh So it's there is never really anything that was kinda that sticks out that was like, Man, they really put me in a bad spot there.
0: Now, at the time of this recording, you are how many months pregnant, Dory?
3: Uh, I am eight. There's, there's a big number there. So I am 32 weeks pregnant.
0: So you and I were discussing this outside of the podcast a little bit, but I think it's a really interesting dynamic about how you and Joey have kind of gone about this. Have you guys thought about or talked about what that process is going to be like when your wonderful baby is born and <laughs> you have to think about some of the ceremonies, if anything, you want to do with those?
3: yes uh and i hope that if anybody else is in this dynamic they don't just sort of ignore it. Um, when Joey and I met, I was not interested in having children at any point ever, even though he was very into children. And eventually when I decided that I was I was ready for it, it was something that I decided um, and he was very accepting of it. But when the topic of religion came around uh, for children, I told him I was totally fine with this child being raised Christian. and going to church and learning about uh, the customs and, and morals and values because One thing that I I highly respect of him is that I believe he's what I consider a true Christian. He (laughs) believes in the good of people. He has values. He helps people. He doesn't think that anybody is wrong in their beliefs because they believe it or their outlook because they lived it. You know, he is he is very true Christian in in my world. And so um, I believe that if you were to bring up a child in that manner, I would be totally fine with it because that's better than some other people that are brought up terribly so i at some point in my pregnancy my grandmother asked me um are we gonna have a bris or a naming and so in the jewish custom uh there is a ceremony uh of circumcision for the if there's a if it's a boy and uh there's a rabbi that comes and it's 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 a very like short but religious ceremony and I asked him if he was okay with this and he was totally fine with it I thought he would have been like I don't really know you know I don't think so but he was totally fine with it because we don't know the sex we're waiting till this baby just arrives and tells us like the rest of them um we are just sort of waiting it out and so I thought that was pretty good because it just shows us how respectful we are of each other's religions even though we may not necessarily believe it we still believe in each other
0: so we really appreciate both Dory and Joey taking time out to chat with us. That was really cool of both of them to sit down and, and kind of get into some intimate details about their lives and their meeting and their courtship and 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 now to eventually pregnancy and eventually <laughs> having a having a baby together. So uh, I really do appreciate the time. I was kind of curious what your reaction was.
1: That was a, that was a charming interview there. Those they both just seem like very genuine very open very very friendly and caring people and it seems like two nicer people couldn't have ended up together like that's a some great stories in there too how neither is like forcing themselves or their faith on each other they're learning from each other which i think is great yeah he sounds a little bit like a real life jeremy too with like having being able to know these things and be very smart and very respectful of all this kind of difference in the world that was really cool to hear. Are you and Lauren
0: same background, same religion, stuff like that?
1: We are. We're both a little uh, lapsed, I think. Lapsed but we Catholics. We do come from, yeah,
0: we do. We come from the same upbringing for the most part, and uh, yeah, you know. So, so. there wasn't any aug- I mean, in that regard, in that no. context, no awkwardness or anything like that when you guys had to meet each other. It's like, oh, is she, is she, a good, is she, a good Catholic girl there, Steve. <laughs> yeah. No, we were all. We were it was a terrible imitation there. of your father, by the way. That was an awful imitation. It worked. Of the elbow
1: dad. thing was pretty good. <laughs> that was that yeah, was for spot on. Those who couldn't on. see, I was kind of like giving the old nudge,
0: nineteen fifties elbowing there.
1: No, that was pretty solid. That was pretty good.
0: You know what's funny? I haven't introduced any girl to my parents because that is still a major concern for me because I was raised Muslim, uh, pretty devout growing up. And you kind of knew I think you and I met like right around when I was still kind of devout and I it started to shift right about when I got to 13, 14, which is a typical age for people to start rebelling against whatever it is that they were raised on. But, you know, for me I I grew up in a pretty religious household, and it's so funny to look at our family dynamic now because I have an older brother who had a very traditional arranged marriage, my oldest brother. Uh, The next brother is dating a, a white woman who is of a completely different religious background, and my third brother was married to another white woman of a completely different religious background. And I would go to their house to celebrate Christmas. Uh, during the holidays just to be a part of the family and enjoy the festivities nothing religious was pushed on me but it was just different to be privy to this that is something i hadn't been privy to when i was growing up
1: and this is, i do recall some of uh some of the junior high adam stuff going on with it all not like <laughs>
0: rebelling in, in like a uh
1: crazy way but i remember you having i wasn't
0: like denouncing right islam standing on the on the table in the lunchroom i
1: remember it having come up in private conversation yeah, you yeah, weren't yeah. like making scenes or anything <laughs> no, i don't want to sound no, like no, that not at all but it was but,
0: I, I feel like it was a ti- it's a kind of a typical timeline for a lot of people when they grow up relatively devout and you know I'm, i would it's not like i don't consider myself to be a muslim anymore but it's like i'm a lapsed, kind of like the, yeah. the equivalent to a lapsed catholic well that's that really, age
1: you know. when you start to kind of meet more people from more backgrounds yeah, like exactly. as you had
0: Junior high, instead of being in like whatever sc-
1: little grade school you had been in, you're meeting people from all over the area, or and, from different and, backgrounds, and from so then you start to kind of ask more questions and, and start to have that kind of thought process.
0: And we're from a diverse, pretty diverse. I mean, Chicago to begin with, but even the suburbs that we kind of went to school in, pretty diverse suburbs. Yeah. I was, and my neighbors were black and Hispanic and white. The three neighbors that surrounded us were all of different ethnic backgrounds, so it was kind of cool to be a part of that. And that's I'm sure. Played a significant role in my thinking today, but really appreciate Joey and Dory giving us some uh, some pretty pretty cool insight relating to what Jeremy and Natalie could potentially be going through right about now.
1: Very nice. Thanks, guys. Getting back in as the show starts to get ready to close. One of my favorite moments in the show. One of my favorite moments, really, any show. Yeah. uh, In the next scene here, we come up on Gordon and Dana in the control room, kind of canoodling. Casey's looking at them through the window gives a little knock on the glass get a room he kind of shouts at him
0: i thought it was actually kind of cool and i don't know if you picked up on it the same way i did but i saw casey when he initially was looking at him it was almost kind of a longing and then he kind of turned it around in a very short amount of time by knocking and i was like oh god what is he doing and then he goes (laughs) hey get a room you two and like kind of playing it and being playful about it so i was like just in that very short amount of time i thought I felt three different emotions <laughs> as to how Casey was feeling. So I thought that was really well played in a very subtle moment of acting.
1: There's some great acting in this scene. Here. Oh my god, So great. Casey enters, they kind of have their little laughs, Dana excuses herself and, and Gordon and Casey have a little talk about the news or about how there is no news or whatever it may be. Uh, Gordon acting really amorous
0: here. He's very really happy. different He's kind of like
1: smiling and like mm, that thing. He's very positive I here. I need
0: you, and like all of a sudden his entire mood has shifted.
1: And we see Casey suddenly another switch where he's now very sort of serious, and he starts to kind of prod him a little bit uh, and asks if he knows Sally. Have you met? You met Sally? She works on the two AM show. Uh, tall woman. Yeah. Gordon kind of kind of writes it yeah, off. We've almost. We shook hands, maybe right? Sure. Uh, and then Casey gives this great run that leads to one of the. All time reveals, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Don't take my friendship with Dana for granted. <laughs> what do you mean? I know you think I'm in love with her. I know she thinks I'm in love with her. And that's all fine, as long as it's fun and games. But I want you to know Dana's important to me. I've known her a long time, and I like her a lot. And there are certain links I'd go to to avoid seeing her get hurt in any way.
3: What's on your mind, Casey?
0: You're wearing my shirt, Gordon.
3: I was wondering why I
1: felt so tight. Wow. Is all
0: I can say. I wrote wrote boom.
1: This is like, (laughs) this episode has these two, you think you get hit with the bombshell when you find out that Casey has slept with Sally. And then moments later you find out, oh yeah, by the way, Gordon has slept
0: with Sally. It's like, holy God. And how about, I don't know if it's a callback necessarily, but I'm calling back to it. What about when Sally talks about the laundry with Casey and goes,
2: maybe it got mixed up with someone else's laundry.
0: Because... Why yeah. would she have a man's a, a man shirt that doesn't belong to Casey unless she was also sleeping with somebody else? So a little, right. very subtle piece of writing that I didn't think about when I first heard it when it was Dan, Casey, and Sally in their office. And immediately I thought, wait a minute. And then yeah. it just, it just hit you're, me really Because
1: you're trying hard. to wrap your head around that whole situation. Yeah. And then this one hits you and it's it's another... It takes it to a whole nother level, which is great. I love Casey's sort of... Putting his foot down but not being like not freaking out, just sort of making it known. Yeah. Like, uh what are you doing?
0: I think just that's more calling him on it. I think that was more impactful. Because if he had just yelled at him, you'd be like, Oh my god, what's happening? Right. But the fact that he's like, I'm watching you, basically. Like, don't screw it up. That's still my friend. I love what he said. You know, it's like, hey, we can all talk about, hey, I'm in love with Dana, or yeah. she's in love, we can all laugh about it as long as nobody gets hurt. But do not take my friendship with dana for granted at all dude it's
1: it's just a terrific reveal and gordon you can just see kind of the wind knocked out of him when he's like oh i was wondering why it felt so tight he's like oh no i've been i've been caught i've been caught so he goes from being real lovey-dovey and just smiling to just like oh no like that yeah uh just a great scene a great reveal and and one that it's all been building towards right it's, it's been getting to this point where these these characters have been getting a little bit closer and closer and then suddenly everything smashes
0: together I like that there was this second bigger reveal. Because, again, when we, we were kind of laughing it off, like, oh, Dana just brought up Sally for no reason. Well, we know where this episode's going. Dana's going to find out that Casey slept with Sally or they're going to have a close call or something. No, 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 no. This is the climax of this episode. Well, that
1: that reveal alone, just the, the Casey-Sally situation creates enough of a, oh, no. Like, enough, sure. like, oh, boy, this is going to be crazy. And then you find out one more layer on top of it. It's like, oh, my God.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, th- and that's something that's typically saved, like, by most shows for two or three episodes to spread that out. And, and, and this show has done that, I'm sure, in, in previous points. But, they are I mean, they hit you hard. We were talking about pacing being really slow. Man, the second act totally boom, picked yeah. up and hit you a couple times with some jabs. We go to
1: a new scene, the last scene of the episode. Casey's at his desk. Dana walks in. It's kind of like, what were you, Gordon, talking about? She's real happy again, like things are good things are good she's convinced herself again that things are, are good and he's been acting very lovey and and oh she's in a really great mood yeah. and he kind of you know just oh oh nothing but he's clearly he's clearly torn like should yeah. i tell her this should i not little on the nose as elliot pokes his head in and and the games have begun, right? The games have started, he yeah. says. Little on the note. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, but a good line and a good moment for Dana to really snap into producer mode where yep. she runs into the newsroom and immediately starts barking out commands and telling everyone what to do. She gets to be happy in her professional life. And now it seems, or at least because she doesn't know, she's happy in her personal life as well. And I think it's a great ending where... It kind of pans back into the guy's office. Casey's standing there by himself, just like hands on his hips, not sure what to do. while
0: Dana is dancing around out there, just feeling really good. And a great touch with the music choice here. Crimson and Clover, really, really good song by Tommy James and the Shondells. One of the best. Same band that did Moni Moni. A lot of people don't realize that Billy Idol when he did Money Money in the 80s, this was a cover of Tommy James and the Shondells, their 1968 song. Crimson and Clover, the song that's used in this episode, actually debuted on WLSAM here in Chicago in 1968. It wasn't even supposed to be played on the air. Tommy James had come in to play it for the executives at the radio station as uh, just kind of a bat, it wasn't a great mix of the song and they were going to go back to the studio and redo it but hey here's what it sounds like they didn't even play it on the air they played it off the air but they didn't know that the engineer was recording them playing it off the air and then because they loved the song so much they played it immediately that night huge reception of the song and in february of 1969 crimson and clover was the number one song in the country
1: very nice also uh, well known to those of our age group, yep. probably as being featured in the Jimmy e World song, A praise Chorus yeah. where they, they kind of <laughs> layer a few like of their influential songs like that on top of it. Over. Over. So yeah, uh, overall, a powerful episode. What a reveal. I still am like thinking back to the moment and wishing I could have seen it for the first time. To just be like, oh my
0: god. I can't believe they hit us that hard in the final 12 minutes, really. of th- This is truly a Shakespearean format. Like, a kind of a slower pace first act. You get caught up with everything in the second act right at the beginning when you come back from intermission. And bam, let's hit you, let's hit you, let's hit you. And this tremendous ending with uh, a really touching finality to it.
1: Yeah, it like lulls you um, to sleep, sort of. Sort like, of makes it makes you yeah. be like, alright, where are we going? okay get that whoa yeah, like it just exactly. suddenly yeah, yeah, gets yeah. you so that it is an episode worth at least for that last scene alone worth just watching and getting into and really pays off towards the end there great episode i'm happy yeah, that really we good. finally got to this one especially that's the hardest part for me as we rewatch this and i know we mentioned it almost every episode is not thinking too far ahead yeah but neutral, i've trying been to waiting for end, yeah. that scene for like as soon as we met ted mcginley basically yeah <laughs> I'm just waiting for him to do the... the. I was wondering why I was a little tight. I was waiting yes. for that moment, and it finally got here, and I was so excited to no, see it. No, this
0: is a, a fantastic episode of Sports Night. And like I said, maybe not one of the episodes that you would show somebody to get them into the show, or maybe you could, but certainly one of the definitive... If not episodes, certainly one of the definitive scenes right at the end of Sally. How are things in Glockamora is the next episode, episode 17 of Sports Night, and this is when a tennis match goes a little longer than expected and we get to really enjoy some of the characters going back and forth much like tennis pun and uh that's what's coming up next the last few episodes after we get that reveal are just fascinating with the character interplay
1: Looking forward to talking about it. Until then, as always, you can download our podcasts at thosestoriespod.weebly.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We're on Google Play now, I think, right? Yes, we are. Hey! You can follow us on pretty much everything social media-wise at thosestoriespod. You can follow Adam at Adam Amin and me at SJCIM.
0: We really appreciate all of you for interacting with us on Twitter, on our website, and of course, if you are so inclined... Feel free to throw us a rating on iTunes, maybe push it up a little bit on the charts. We are really excited that we've had as a positive of a response as we've had for this podcast.
1: Until next time, for Adam Amin, I'm Steve Cimino, and you've been listening to Those Stories Plus.